You have rights. The Constitution says you do. But do you have a constitutional right to sell drugs to Uncle Sam at any price you want? That's the legal argument the pharmaceutical industry is making, sort of. And today we're going to break down those arguments and see if they make any sense. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So today we're going to be talking about some litigation that the pharmaceutical industry filed against the Biden administration. And I should say that when I first brought up these lawsuits in a meeting with my coworkers, I was met with some blank stares. The confusion was around how bold, some might even say audacious, the pharma industry arguments are. Drug makers are saying their fundamental constitutional rights are being violated by a new law that, for the first time ever, requires them to negotiate with Medicare on prices. To be more specific, the drug companies argue this law violates the Fifth Amendment because it's a taking without just compensation, the Eighth Amendment because it imposes excessive fines, and even the First Amendment because it forces the drug makers to say something they don't want to say. Now, at this point, you, like my coworkers, are probably scratching your heads. When the framers of the Constitution drafted the Bill of Rights, were they really trying to protect the drug pricing power of Big Pharma, as it's often derisively called? But I wanted to see if I could take these arguments at face value and maybe make them make sense. Or if not that, then maybe I could at least try to understand why the drug companies are going to court with this really maximalist strategy. And to help me out with that, I have Bloomberg Law Health Policy reporter Celine Castro-Nuovo. Hi, Celine. Hi, David. All right. So in a bit, we're going to get into the con law arguments, which one of our sources described as constitutional spaghetti. Yes, spaghetti. But first, we're going to start off with the history, because that's really important here. So, Celine, can you tell us why right now Medicare cannot negotiate with drug companies? Yeah. So Medicare for a while did not cover prescription drugs for the most part. It wasn't until 2003 when Congress added the prescription drug benefit. President Bush signed a new Medicare bill into law today, the most extensive changes to the health care program since its inception. It covers some of the cost of prescription drugs for seniors, and there is a larger role for private health insurers. And indeed, there was a larger role for private insurers, much larger. So it's primarily run by, you know, private health plans. That's not like most of the rest of Medicare, which is run directly by the government itself. So why did Congress set it up this way? Stacy Ducessina, a health policy professor at Vanderbilt University, says it was done from the belief in the power of the free market. And she says that's the rationale behind another provision in the Part D law, that Medicare could not directly negotiate with the drug companies on prices. Part of this was thinking that private plans could actually do a good job of negotiating and getting favorable pricing. So they'd have a lot of incentives to try to get low prices so that they could actually make higher profits and pass on savings to consumers and attract more people by having low premiums. So I think there is a little bit of a let the private market handle it kind of flair. But going back to 2003, I can kind of see the reasoning behind this. However, Celine, I think it's an understatement to say this was not a bipartisan idea at the time. Right. Yeah. And so there was it was a huge issue um, even back in 2003. And it stayed a huge issue into the following year's presidential race. I welcome you to the second of the 2004 presidential debates between President George W. Bush, the Republican nominee, and Senator John Kerry, the Democratic nominee. 
John Kerry, you know, even mentioned, you know, that the government should be able to negotiate lower prices. You know what he did? He made it illegal, illegal for Medicare to do what the VA does, which is bulk purchase drugs so that you can lower the price and get them out to you lower. As you may be aware, Kerry did not end up winning the election, so this policy stayed in place. But believe it or not, it seems like the negotiation ban actually kind of worked as intended in some cases. In some cases. Yeah, that qualifier is important. Anna Kaltenbeck, a health economist at the firm ATI Advisory, who used to work for the Democrats on the Senate Finance Committee, says those private companies that run Medicare prescription plans have done a good job of getting reduced prices for certain drugs, specifically drugs that are made by a lot of different manufacturers. But for other drugs where, you know, it's the only drug available for a given indication, if they're specialty drugs, you know, those have kind of been able to maintain a monopoly in the market and charge high prices. Yeah, and here's Anna. A lot of drugs, health plans have to cover, right? So for example, think of cancer drugs. And that's sort of at the core of this monopoly question is there are some drugs out there where this is what patients rely on. There are no alternatives or the drugs by law or by regulation are protected and therefore have to be covered. Uh, Those are drugs where there's just not a lot of negotiating leverage. So what's happening here, basically, is the private insurers, the ones who are supposed to negotiate to get low prices, have no leg to stand on. They have to cover these drugs by law, and the pharma industry knows this, so it charges pretty much whatever it wants. To better illustrate this, here are a few numbers. In 2021, Medicare plans covered more than 3,500 drugs for its beneficiaries and spent a gross amount of nearly $216 billion. Almost a quarter of that $216 billion, 25%, came from just the top 10 most expensive drugs. To drive that point home even further, there's this. The single most expensive drug covered, the blood thinner Eliquis, cost Medicare more than $12.5 billion that year. That's $12.5 billion for one drug. And by the way, remember that name of the drug, Eliquis, because there's been a new development involving it, and we're going to get to that in just a bit. But enough with the numbers. This can get pretty esoteric, but it does affect real human people, people like David Mitchell. David Mitchell is a patient advocate, but also has multiple myeloma. And so he takes several drugs uh, to combat his disease. It's not like it's easy. It's not. All cancer drugs come with a cost. Uh, and I don't mean a financial cost. It has. There's that. But cancer drugs have side effects and Bad things happen sometimes when you take them. And so this push to have the government be able to negotiate on behalf of beneficiaries is something that's very important and close to him. The drugs I take carry a list price of about $960,000 a year. Just one of those drugs, an oral drug on Part D, uh, costs me more than $17,000 out of pocket annually. So I'm a lucky guy. Uh, I'm alive. I'm grateful. Uh, But the drugs I'm taking are way overpriced. And that brings us nicely to the present day, because that $17,000 number that David mentioned could be coming way down in the near future. And that's because of President Biden's big legislative package that Congress passed last year. It's known as the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. 
The IRA included a ton of healthcare provisions, but the most important part for our purposes is the drug price negotiations. And so basically gave Medicare the authority to negotiate prices for a lot of the drugs it spends the most money on. That's right, John Kerry's dream is finally realized. And if it's John Kerry's dream, it's the pharmaceutical industry's nightmare. Because this is something the industry has been fighting ever since Medicare Part D came into being, before that actually. And we should say here that we invited all the pharma industry plaintiffs in these suits, along with the defendant here, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to come on this podcast, but they either declined or didn't respond. But okay, let's look at this from the drug maker's perspective and break down their constitutional arguments. And let's begin with the Fifth Amendment claims. As a refresher, that's the amendment that says the government can't take private property without, as the framers of the Constitution put it, just compensation. Several of the companies cite the Fifth Amendment. And so the drug makers who who cite the Fifth Amendment say that basically being forced to negotiate with the government is a government taking, um, that they're forcing them to lower the prices and not providing just compensation for it. Even though it's called a negotiation program, this is an offer that really can't be refused. That's Dan Troy, a managing director at the consulting firm Berkeley Research Group, who was general counsel at GSK and before that was chief counsel of the FDA under George W. Bush. He says these aren't really negotiations at all, but instead just straight-up government price controls. And if the government is going to cap the price of a good, that can be a taking. In fact, the Supreme Court just affirmed this very concept that a price control program can be a taking back in 2015. It was a case involving a Department of Agriculture program to stabilize the prices of, believe it or not, raisins. The government can, of course, regulate raisin sales in many ways, but it cannot require growers to waive their right to just compensation in exchange for something as basic as the ability to sell their produce. That, of course, was the Chief Justice of these United States, John Roberts, talking about raisin law. So that's the Fifth Amendment argument. Let's move on to the Eighth Amendment. And this stems from a provision that Congress put into the IRA to account for what might happen if the drug companies refuse to come to the negotiating table. So this is the scenario Congress was worried about. Medicare says to the drug makers, hey, you guys have to negotiate with us now. And the drug makers say, no, we're not going to do that. We're only selling our drugs at this price. Take it or leave it. And because these are life-saving drugs, we know you, Medicare, will take it. So to prevent this scenario, the new Medicare law imposes some pretty hefty fines on drug makers who won't come to the table. The fines amount to anywhere from 65 to 95% of the sales of the drug at issue. 65 to 95% of sales, that's pretty high. And the pharma industry says it's so high that it violates the Eighth Amendment. Dan Troy says that when you factor that into it, it's clear that there's nothing voluntary about these negotiations. They have no recourse. There's no right of appeal. Um, there's no right to challenge. There's, they're very limited in what they can submit and very limited in terms of their counteroffer. So all of the normal traditional sort of safeguards that we have around any kind of you know, regulatory taking or uh, price control is missing from this program. And this is where we should get into the First Amendment claims. And honestly, they're a little less significant than the other two, but we thought we'd get into this here just because it's kind of interesting. So several of the companies argue that being forced to participate in this negotiation program is a form of compelled speech that violates the First Amendment, basically because by participating in the negotiation, it therefore implies that the companies believe it's a fair negotiated process where 
the companies are saying it's not a negotiation process at all. It's, you know, the government mandating this is what's happening. This is the price you're going to pay. Okay, so those are the basic outlines of the pharma industry's fight against Medicare negotiations. But the question you're probably asking now is, will the industry win this fight? According to nearly all the people we spoke to, basically everyone except Dan Troy, no. The way I'd like to describe it is they're kind of throwing constitutional spaghetti at the wall and hoping that something will stick. And there's that constitutional spaghetti we told you about. That's Nicholas Bagley, a health law professor at the University of Michigan and a former advisor to the state's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer. He pointed out there's another option for drug companies if they don't want to negotiate and they want to avoid that excise tax. They can just stop selling their drugs to Medicare altogether. That would be a massive financial hit for them since Medicare covers 14% of every man, woman, and child in the United States, but they could do it. Furthermore, Nicholas says the exact line of argument that pharma is putting forward right now was tried before, way back in the mid-70s. That was when Congress first imposed limits on physician reimbursement. He says the doctors sued Medicare, just like pharma is now. And they made this argument, and the court gave it the back of their hand. And the court said, listen, it you know, may be very hard for you to walk away from this program because it's so lucrative. But that's not tantamount to coercion or duress. That's just a change in how much a government program chooses to pay you. And if you don't want it, if you don't like it, you can walk away. And that's been the law in the 50 years since that case was decided. I should say, too, that the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed that decision without an opinion. We've had dozens of cases since then that have held in no uncertain terms that when a participant in a government program can walk away, it's not coercive to make a change in how you pay them. But ultimately, Nicholas isn't ready to give a 100% certain prediction that the Biden administration will win and this law will remain in place. And that's because, as we've seen time and time again over the past few years, this Supreme Court has shown it's more than willing to disregard precedent and establish new case law. So what you're seeing, I think, is a full court press in the courts from the pharmaceutical industry. You'll also notice they filed so many of these lawsuits, a half a dozen of them, in order to get as many touches on the ball as they can. So maybe they'll get a couple of positive decisions from, you know, right-wing judges in the lower courts, and maybe that'll build momentum for some of these arguments that right now seem outlandish. Uh, And hopefully that will sort of build support for their case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Again, I don't think that's likely, but I think that's their game plan. And honestly, this idea that pharma is ultimately pinning its hopes on getting heard at the Supreme Court is something that basically everyone agrees on. Nicholas, drug industry attorney Dan Troy, even our own Celine Castro-Nuovo. And so and if you look at, you know, the attorneys as well who are on these cases, several of them have argued before the Supreme Court previously. So it's some really heavy hitters who these companies have brought on to argue their cases. This Supreme Court has been more and more, I think, protective of property rights. And I think they're, they have a reasonable chance, um, ultimately, of succeeding because th- this is really unique. I mean, n- no scheme has ever looked like this. And I think the court is going to uh, take a very, very, very hard look at it. Okay, so that's what those constitutional cases are all about. Let's go over really briefly the next steps here. Late last month, the Biden administration announced the first 10 drugs that will be subject to negotiations, one of which was, you guessed it, Eliquis. Now, the ball is in the drug makers' courts. So these companies have until October 1st to sign agreements. If there's going to be a decision um, before then, it is going to likely come from the Chamber of Commerce's case in Ohio. So there, the chamber um, and several state and local affiliates 
asked for a preliminary injunction. They've asked the judge there to issue a decision before October 1st, this deadline for the companies to agree to the negotiations. And so there's or arguments in that case scheduled for September 15th. And then after that, you know, we could see a decision from the judge on whether they will issue that pause in the program. Okay, thanks, Celine. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, and Celine Castro-Nuovo with additional help from Cheryl Sines. Matthew Schwartz was our editor today, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I felt like I was in jail every day. When I was going to work, I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under Chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.